0: I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 49, Isaiah 49. As we look here at the first 7 verses of Isaiah, we're considering together today the idea that God is calling us, has called us to a global mission. We've been walking for several weeks now through this theme that we are a local church committed to Christ-centered worship, life on life, discipleship for the sake of a global mission. And it's this last part that we're going to consider together today, as we consider the mission that God calls us to. as we've worked our way entirely around uh, this outer circle here, to a global mission. And today in this text, we're going to see this central idea that we are here to make disciple, to make disciples of all peoples. God calls us to be disciples who make disciples, who share the love of Jesus with those around us. So I'll begin reading now in Isaiah 49 verse 1. Isaiah writes, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow, in his quiver he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Now, if we've got any kids left in here this morning, I know your parents tell you not to bring toys to church, but I brought one with me this morning. In fact, this is a, a fairly recent acquisition in our house. This week, we stopped by uh, the Troy Herndon Insurance Agency, and all of our kids walked out with one of these. Now, i got to say, you know, if you all stop by, I'm not promising that you'll get one of these. If you're not under the age of 10, I don't know if you know, if that applies to you, but each of our kids walked out with, with a foam football, And I was thinking about this this Nerf ball and I was thinking about life. You know, we kind of walk through life and we think of ourselves as kind of, I don't know, formed or shaped or kind of, I don't know, who we are. And yet, what happens to us over time is that life tends to to, to press in on us, doesn't it? You know, there's there's work pressure, then there's financial pressure, and then relational pressure. And what happens is our view of the world becomes compressed. It becomes a shadow of what it's supposed to be. It becomes a misshapen, kind of twisted view of the world, and suddenly we begin to view life through pain and heartache and through all of these things that are compressing our lives. And what I'd like for us to do this morning is to take the Word of God and allow it to expand our view of the world to lift our eyes beyond the pain, beyond the daily heartache, beyond the things that crush us, beyond the things that weigh us down, beyond the things that sort of twist and mangle our view of life, and consider the fact that God is at work in the the world today, not just here, not just in our lives, and we are not the center of the universe, but the creator of the universe is at work throughout the world, throughout the nations, and we are a small part of what he is doing, but he gives us the privilege of being a small part of what he is doing to call the nations to faith in Christ. So this morning, let's let the word of God reshape our view of the world, expand our minds, expand our souls, and live with a vision, the, the mission in sight that God calls us. He says about Jesus here, it is too light a thing that you call simply the tribes of Jacob. It is too light a thing that you call Israel. No, I have designed you as a light for the nations. And we are here to make the name of Jesus known in our little corner of the world, to be a little part of this grand and glorious mission to call people to faith in Christ. Now, you may not know Isaiah 49, but those who study the Bible and see how it connects often call this the Great Commission of the Old Testament. So the passage that T.O. read for us a little while ago, if if you aren't familiar with that, It's commonly called the Great Commission. In other words, at the end of his life here on earth, before he ascends back into heaven, Jesus gives his disciples a mission. He commissions them to reach the world with the good news that Jesus Christ died to save sinners. That's the commission. Well, here in Isaiah, we have the Old Testament form of the Great Commission. Isaiah 49 is one of four servant songs that we have in Isaiah. So Isaiah 42. Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, and then chapters 52 and 53. Now, those are the most famous because often kind of before Easter, we'll think of Isaiah 53, that that God sent Jesus to become a man of sorrows. He he knows grief, he's acquainted with grief. And there's the famous passage, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to to his own way. and, And the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53 is quoted frequently in the New Testament. Seven times the most famous of which is in Romans 10. Perhaps you know these words. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Paul wrote those words, but those aren't Paul's words. Paul quotes those for Isaiah 53. So what we're seeing here in Isaiah 49, this First, the second of these four servant songs is the idea that Jesus came not just with, with a small mission, but with a global mission to redeem people from every corner of the globe for his name, to in love reach into the world, to a dying lost world, and save sinners in need of grace. Isaiah 49 is ultimately about calling people to faith in Christ. So we're going to trek through this and see how it is the Lord works through his servant, Jesus. In verses one to four, we see the servant's call. We see immediately that this call is global in its focus. Verse two, listen to me, O coastlands, give attention peoples from afar. So, So what the writer is doing here is he's calling attention from every corner of the globe. He's saying, listen to me, listen to what I have to say. And this isn't something new. This is something that God has planned before the foundation of the world. Verse one, the Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. Before Jesus was ever born of Mary, God had planned this and called Jesus by name. So what then is Jesus's mission? What does he come to do? Verse two tells us he is a prophet. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. This servant is a powerful preacher with a particular message, The language here is the picture of a powerful warrior, a sharp sword, a polished arrow prepared and kept in waiting for his ministry. In Psalm 59, David is writing and he talks about his enemies. Now David's used to -to hand-to-hand combat, he's used to to bows and arrows, slingshots, swords and armor. And he uses this metaphor, but, but he talks about the way his enemies' words cut him. Psalm 59 7, there they are bellowing with, with, bellowing with their mouths with swords in their lips for who they think will hear us. Swords in their lips. Have you ever heard the phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me? That ain't true. God's word says that words can be sharp like a sword. In this case, enemies using it for evil, or in Jesus's case, his, his, his message is sharp. It cuts to the center of our heart and convicts us of our need for him. This prophet's good words are words that cut right to the heart of the purpose of our existence. Then in verse three he gets this title, "'You are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified.'" So what we have here is something that we see a lot in scripture. There is an initial fulfillment and then there's an ultimate fulfillment. And so what we have here is there's this initial fulfillment in Israel. In other words, he says, you are my servant Israel, but then he's going to say, and that ain't it. Ultimately, this servant is Jesus Christ. So Orthodox Jews think this servant is Israel. They're half right, but ultimately it's fulfilled in the coming of God's son, Jesus. That's the ultimate fulfillment of this. But the servant doesn't meet with wild success. Verse four, he says, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. There's this honest grappling with discouragement and failure, and yet also a commitment to trusting God, even when he can't see anything good. He says, yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. So who's this verse speaking about? It's speaking about Jesus. It's speaking about our Savior, the one who would come, who's perfect, who never sinned. The one who could take the sin of the world on his shoulders and redeem anyone who believes in him. Everything that Jesus experienced, he experienced as a human being, and he felt the emotions described here in verse four. Everything I do is in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing. You know, Sometimes we picture Jesus like this, like you know, this conquering superhero who comes into the world and and he lives this idyllic life and nothing goes wrong for him. But how is it that he's described here? Remember in Isaiah 53, he's described as what? A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. The language that, that God uses there to describe him, he says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Remember what we were describing at, at the beginning, this, 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 the crushing nature of life. Jesus, the infinite God, the perfect God, came to earth and he experienced a crushing, a crushing he didn't deserve, a crushing that he didn't earn. A lot of what we experience is a result of our own mistakes, our own sin. Yet Jesus came to earth and he experienced a crushing under God's will. Why? So that the Lord might lay on him whose sin, our sin, the sin, the iniquity of us all. He came and he was crushed for our sin. He was bruised for our iniquities and with his wounds, we are healed. I was, I was reading this, this, this chapter again this week and it was just astounding. So there's this process, this, just, this brutal description of God punishing, crushing, bruising, striking Jesus for our sin. And then at the end of Isaiah 53, you know what it says? That Jesus turns around and he makes intercession for the transgressors. He stands there and he bears our sin. He is crushed under the punishment of our sin. And then he turns around and he says, Father, forgive them. This is astounding. Everything that Jesus is receiving, I deserve. The punishment, the strikes, the blows, the judgment of God. And yet Jesus turns around. Not only does he bear that, he turns around. and He says, Father, don't give it to him. He deserves it, but be merciful to him. And he bears it in our place. This is just astounding. This kind of love, this kind of sacrifice, this kind of death, this kind of punishment. Jesus was crushed in our place. That's amazingly good news. But what it also tells us is this, that for those who don't know Jesus, for those who don't trust Jesus, for those who don't place their faith in Jesus, The punishment of God for their sin is on them. And the descriptions are so terrible in Isaiah 53 because none of us are designed to carry that. We we can't pay that. It's an infinite weight. It's a great punishment. It's a great judgment. What we sang about that we were God's enemies under the wrath of God, but now we're seated at his table, is only possible through faith in Christ. God declares that his love is so great that he so loved the world that he sent his own son to die in our place. But the only people who receive this mercy, who receive this grace, are those who believe in him. Those are the ones who don't perish. Those are the ones who receive eternal life. Friend, the stakes are not small. They're great. If you are here without Christ, would you place your faith in the Son of God and you will be saved. Yet I think there's another lesson for us here. Jesus knows discouragement. I mean, the Son of God could say, I feel like my work is in vain. I have poured myself out, I have spent my strength, and I have nothing. You ever feel like that? You are giving it your best. You are pouring yourself out at work, and no matter what you do, you feel like you're not measuring up. Or your kids, you love them, you're just trying to do your best by them, you're just trying to serve them, and no matter what you do, you can't please your kids, and it gets harder as they get older, doesn't it? And look back, and they're like, mom and dad, you did this, and did this, and this, and this wrong, and you're like, yep, and you feel like a failure. Or maybe you're in a relationship with your husband or wife and, and no matter what you do, you cannot measure up. You can't make him happy. You can't make her happy. And there's this depressing feeling of failure. You're working hard, you're laboring, and you have nothing to show for it. God's word tells us that Jesus himself experienced this discouragement. He experienced this emotion. I mean, sometimes the most discouraging thing about being discouraged is being discouraged about being discouraged. It's like, I'm discouraged and I'm discouraged about that. And and then it's this vicious cycle and it feeds itself. Discouragement feeds discouragement, feeds discouragement, feeds discouragement. And you find yourself and you're you're at the bottom of a hole and you can see maybe, maybe, maybe somewhere up there, there's some light, but you can barely see it. And you're so far down in the hole, you don't know how to climb out. So if you find yourself this morning down this deep hole, what do you do? the first thing you do this morning is identify with Jesus because he identifies with us. He's tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. He experiences discouragement. He experiences emotion. He identifies strongly with your discouragement. So look to his example who in spite of his discouragement, what does he do? So he he voices his discouragement. I've spent my strength for nothing. I'm here, I'm at the bottom of this dark hole. There's no hope, what do I do? And then he proclaims this, yet surely my right is with the Lord. When you're down at the bottom of that hole, if you look to yourself, you will be crushed. And yet Isaiah 53 tells us it was God's will to crush Jesus so that we might not be crushed. So what should we do? We should look to the example of Christ who in this moment, when when all is compressing, when when life is compressing in, what do we tend to do? We tend to look inward, don't we? We tend to look how we feel. We tend to look at our emotions. We tend to look to this, this sense of personal discouragement. What do I do? God, I feel so terrible. And yet what does Jesus do? He looks to the Lord. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, he says. Our confidence is in the Lord, his own right arm provided salvation. The Lord is my salvation, whom then shall I fear? We looked to God in this moment to deliver us from something we can never deliver us from. We can't deliver ourselves. So when you're discouraged, that you're discouraged. Look to Christ who rested in the Lord. It's what Hebrews 12 tells us. Run your race with patience, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross itself, Despise the shame and is now set down at the right hand of the throne of God. If you get your eyes on yourself, you will die. But fix your eyes on him who has run before you. And the author of Hebrews says right after this, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, but Jesus did. Look to him. So this is his call. What is the servant's mission? We see this in verses five and six. I love how these verses reveal the the plan of God. Verse five tells us that God works to bring Israel to him. So God is working to call a people to worship him and he works through prophets, priests, and kings to call Israel. But Isaiah 48 tells us that Israel has already failed in their worship. God calls them to worship and yet they've already failed. Isaiah 48 verse one, those who are called by the name of Israel confess the God of Israel but not in truth or right. In other words, there's there's this hypocrisy. They say, oh yeah, we're worshipers of the true God, but their life doesn't match up. They don't live in a way that shows that that this God is their God. So God has this mission of calling people to himself and he's been doing this throughout history. From Adam to Noah to Abraham to Moses to David to Jesus, God is calling people to worship him. He's calling first a family and then he calls a nation and now he calls all peoples to worship him sometimes our our tendency is to is to view the bible as just kind of like you got this one part that's you know the new part's kind of hard to understand the old part's really 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 hard to understand and so we kind of create this 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 division in the word of god i know y'all won't be able to concentrate on anything after that ball fell off but hang with me here so you've got this division in the word of god and yet and yet what god shows us is that his plan has always been to call people to worship him to call the nations to make jesus as a light to the nations. That's why this is called the Great Commission of the Old Testament, because God's plan has always been to call all people to worship him. We see it most clearly in the New Testament, but it's here in the Old Testament. A well-known professor in England, Alex Alex Mottier, called the uh, blank page in our Bibles between the Old and the New Testament, he he, he called that the abomination of desolation, because it gives the idea that it's not one book. It's like there's this great line in between. He says, no, 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 no. God has always been working redemption for his people. God has always been calling people to his name. And so Isaiah now takes the mission and he expands it. And so we see there's no disconnect between what God says to Isaiah and what he says to us today. Verse six, he says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. God is concerned about the salvation of all peoples in both the Old and the New Testament. It's not a new idea. We see him working in particular ways, in particular times, but it's too small to call one nation. Jesus is a light for all nations, that the salvation of God may reach the ends of the earth. Isaiah 42, the first servant song, says it this way, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. And my glory I give to no other. Jesus Christ is a savior for all peoples, a light for all nations. So this morning let's lift up our eyes, let's expand our mind and imagine that God is at work throughout the globe Throughout history, and he is calling people to worship him beyond even one nation, and says that his glory will be seen among all peoples. This is a servant's mission. So, what then is the servant's glory? Verse 7. There's some great irony here. In verse 7, the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, says, Kings shall see and arise, princes, and prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful. But what is this one they bow before? He is one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation servant of rulers. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture because of the way it highlights the humility of Christ. One of the famous verses there is, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then it describes this mind. He says that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of men. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what's the result of this humiliation? What's the result of this death? Therefore, Paul says, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What is the servant's glory? It's to be humiliated so that God might raise him up He humbled himself and God has glorified him. Jesus gets more glory because he humbled himself to a shameful death on a cross. Every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord precisely because he subjected himself to shame. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. We're all on this upward ladder climb, but we got it wrong climbing down. It's humbling ourselves. It's lowering ourselves like the Savior. And again, this is not an original idea with Paul, because that's the exact same thing that Isaiah describes here. He says, to one who is despised, abhorred, kings will see and bow before him. Paul's just picking up on Isaiah's theme here. There's this picture. Jesus deserves Glory. He gets scorn, he gets pain, he gets punishment. Jesus deserves worship. He gets mocking, he gets scorn, he gets death. Because of this, Jesus' future glory is magnified because of the shame that he endured for love, in love for us. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And in verse 13, if you look down further in Isaiah 49, this glory extends to all creation, not just people. Isaiah writes here, sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth, break forth, O mountains, into singing. All creation will shout the glory of Jesus. Now, you might be tempted to say, well, this is something you you see here this morning, but it's something that really, if you look, is throughout the word of God. Now, we're gonna bust through a bunch of passages here. We're gonna do it real quick, but you're gonna see that this theme, the idea that God is calling out a people for his own glory is a theme that fills the Bible from front to back, from cover to cover. Isaiah 48, verses nine and 11. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another. First Samuel 12, 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. Psalm 106, seven and eight. "'Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, "'did not consider your wondrous works. "'They did not remember the abundance "'of your steadfast love, but rebelled. "'Yet he saved them for his name's sake, "'that he might make known his mighty power.'" Isaiah 43, 6 and 7, bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Isaiah 43, verse 25, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. Ezekiel thirty six twenty two thus says the Lord God, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, Now, New Testament, Matthew 5, verse 16, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to my Father who is in heaven. John 12, verse 27, now is my soul troubled, Jesus says, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come. Father, glorify your name. John 14, verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, this will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. John 17, 24, Jesus' high priestly prayer, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Well, what about this verse, one of the most well-known verses in all of scripture, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans eleven thirty six. 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever, amen. Or well, 1 Corinthians ten thirty one. whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, "'Do all to the glory of God.'" Or what about when we get to the end of time, we get to the book of Revelation, "'By your blood you ransom people for God "'from every tribe and language and people and nation. "'To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb "'be blessing and honor and glory and might "'forever and ever.'" Revelation 21:23. 23, "'The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, "'for the glory of God gives it light, "'and its lamp is the Lamb.'" This is a small sampling of what God has to say about our purpose. We exist for God's glory and God's glory alone. We are here to worship Him, to make Him known, and to call people to the worship of Him. We exist to call people to the worship of this God. Do you doubt it? Open your Bible and read. It is there. God calls us all to this mission, and this means that we make disciples of all peoples. How does God do this? This is John 3 16. God loving the world, sending his son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And what do we spend our life doing? Ultimately, worshiping him. It's what God calls us to. So what then does this mean for us? First, global missions is central to our mission as a church. It's not something separate or distinct. God calls us to reach the nations. So we seek out strategic partnerships, ways that we can be involved in doing this. We prioritize establishing, growing, and strengthening local churches here in the U.S. and around the world. We do this in part through some ladies named Lottie and Annie and Janie, Lottie Moon and Annie Armstrong and Janie Chapman. But this isn't something that we merely pay others to do. That's a part of it. But missions is so much more than simply paying someone else to reach the nations. It's us carrying this light. It's us shining this light. We all engage in this work. And we pray not only will God enable us to do this here, but we pray that God calls people, young men, young women, old men, old women, to reach the nations for the sake of his name, to spread the the harvest to the the farthest corners of the globe and spread the good news of Jesus. Might God be calling you to reach the nations for Christ. He calls all of us to reach the people around us. Secondly, we prioritize equipping and mobilizing disciples over rather than attractional events. If you're not seeing it, history and culture have shifted a lot in the last 10 to 15 years. But if you track it back, it goes back much further than that, so kind of what you might call the de-Christianization or post-Christian world has gone from continental Europe to the UK, from the UK to the US, and it's going from big cities to little cities, and it's going everywhere. We live in post-Christian Western civilization. The world around us has changed. Now, we can respond to this by saying, what a terrible world we live in. But Jesus saw that as a harvest field, white, ready for opportunity. It's the same world the early church faced, a world that was hostile to their message of repentance and faith in Jesus. Often, our way of reaching the nations, a way of reaching our community, is built around the idea that our culture shares a Christian worldview. This ain't true. Just go sit in any shop, and talk with someone who's not familiar with your worldview. They don't have the same preconceptions. It was once true that there were a lot of similarities. It's not true anymore. But this is also an opportunity. We can look at this as a threat, like the encroaching world. But God is bringing the nations to our doorstep. He says, reach the nations. I send you, but you know what? I'm gonna even make it better. I'm gonna send them to you. I'm gonna surround you with them so you can't miss them. Peter Drucker passed away, I don't know, a decade or so ago, but he's a well-known leadership executive expert in the 20th century. He wrote a book called something like, I don't know, The Excellent or Outstanding Executive. He he wrote a bunch of these books. But when he immigrated to the United States, he's from Austria originally, he came ultimately through the UK and Germany, but he tried to buy a house in New York City. When he sat down with a banker, the banker said, well, um, who recommends you, you know, what, what priest, rabbi, pastor recommends you? And he's, you know, from Europe, and he's like, well, why do you need to know that? And he said, well... Why would we trust someone who wasn't religious? Can you imagine sitting down like on your bank application now you have to have like a recommendation from me? Like we're far removed from this world. The world around us has shifted rather quickly and yet the church is built around the idea of attractionalism, that there's this similarity and if we just kind of build it, they will come. And so we do events and events are good, but but they aren't really the core of our discipleship. They aren't the core of how we reach the nations. Fall festival, Easter egg hunts, VBS, these are wonderful tools. But the front door to the church is no longer putting up a billboard and hoping that people come in the door. It's people connecting with people. It's equipping the church to be the church on mission. Disciples who make disciples. A lot of what we think of as outreach, because historically it has been, a lot of what we think of as outreach it's now a way for us to hang out together and that's encouraging and that's good It's, it's not a bad thing those are good things but they're not reaching the world for Christ so how do we begin to do this thirdly every part of our lives must be hospitable and gospel focused the early church gathered for worship and they invited other people into their lives and homes biblical hospitality is spirit-empowered, gospel-fueled, love for strangers that's intended to draw them into a relationship with Christ. So rather than thinking events, think inviting people into your life, inviting people into your home, sitting down with them over, I don't know, a coffee or lunch or a conversation at the gym. And let's face it, as a church, we've got to invest resources here, we're an easy church to find and a hard place to get into. I, I, have, have, you, have you put on your like, first-time visitor hat lately? It ain't easy to find your way around this maze. It's like dropping in a corn maze and finding your way out. So we've got to stop caring who's sitting in our seat. Some of people say, oh, are we sitting in your seat? Say, we don't got seats. Like, is there a seat available? We'll sit there it's a good thing if someone's sitting in your seat it means someone who don't know the rules is here it means there's someone new who walked in the door and they didn't see your name carved in there etched in there that's a good thing so when people say you expect us to talk to the people here yes that's why we're here we're here to welcome the people who are here now i get there are introverts and extroverts We got these in our house and they relate to people in different ways. I'm not saying everyone has to be greeter. Hey, 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 hey. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about building a culture that intentionally welcomes and expects people who haven't always been here. People who don't know the rigmarole. It's a good thing to have someone sitting in your seat. If all these seats fill up, that's a good problem to have. Right, fourthly, we can overcomplicate this but I think it's best if we keep evangelism simple. Pray, meet people, and tell them about Jesus. One reason we share the gospel in every sermon is so that non-Christians who come will hear the gospel clearly. But we also do this to equip believers with the gospel. Now, I've done a number of evangelism classes and programs in my life, and they can be helpful, helpful in giving tools. But in the end, it comes down to having a personal relationship with Christ, and then sharing that with other people. It's, it's really pretty simple. Now, it's hard, but it's simple. Now, a lot of y'all know, I went to a reformed seminary. The first class I sat down in there was a class on evangelism. Now, we could sit there and learn all kinds of theories about evangelism. You know what the hardest thing in that class was? The teacher saying, go out, find someone who doesn't know Jesus, and have a conversation with that person about Jesus. It's not that we don't know enough. We know it, we just hesitate to do it because of fear. Let's share Jesus. We love our place and we seek to be welcoming to outsiders, but we have to share Christ. We have to get across that barrier. And fifthly, and this may be the most controversial, I don't intend it to be, but we also believe in the power of the gospel for racial reconciliation. Now look, this isn't about quotas. I don't believe in that sort of thing. It's about missions. It's about reaching the people God brings to our door. Ephesians teaches us that the gospel compels us to be reconciled as people of different races. Heard someone saying in Sunday school this morning, it's true, it's not black, white. It's people worshiping God together. But there are particular obstacles culturally here what if God did something so unimaginably beautiful that it became a normal thing, not an unexpected thing for people of different backgrounds and ethnicities to worship God together? Where we didn't have separate places of worship. Where 11 o'clock, or in our case ten fifteen Sunday morning, weren't the most segregated hour on earth. What if we each died to ourselves to serve others? We're not seeking a particular quota, but seeking to be the kind of congregation that welcomes all people. Now look, I've only been here 15 months, But I know from people sitting here and stories you've shared that this has not always been the case here. I know the first time that someone of a different race joined this church, it was hard for some people here. And I get that, and and I I get that there are generational differences. But if Jesus welcomes all people, we will too. We make disciples of all peoples, because Jesus calls his people from all peoples. So let's take a moment now, respond to the word in repentance and faith, and ask God to make us a hospitable, welcoming, gospel-preaching congregation. Let's pray. Talk to him now.